This is Paul Siegel. You're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live at 1 p.m. Eastern on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and youtube.com slash wanderingdms slash live. And now, on with the show. Hi everyone, welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan, and on this episode we have John Peterson, who you may know as the very famous author of the Playing at the World book, his Playing at the World website, and possibly the Wandering DMs intro screen. Uh, so John, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me back again. It's always a pleasure to visit with you guys. That's the best. That's the best. So we have uh, John here to talk about his latest uh, book, uh, Game Wizards, that came out at the end of last uh, uh, year. Uh, but before that, uh, maybe, maybe Paul, you're going to remind us about uh, what our viewers should know. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, viewers, uh, as always, at the end of the show today, we will be hosting our after-party chat on our private Discord server. You can join in on that chat if you want uh, by joining our Patreon, uh, available at patreon.com slash wanderingdms. So go uh, go check out our Patreon, join us, and uh, have a direct video chat with us at 2 o'clock today. Definitely. Definitely. So, you know, John, it's funny. As someone uh, who's done a little bit of um, publishing, I guess for me, actually, it's some of the, I've had this experience in the music industry, actually, of you work on a product for publication, and then the process, you were just talking about a couple minutes ago, the process of getting it published it takes a while and then you wind up talking promoting it and you sometimes creatively are years past the point when you were actually writing it and so with the game wizards book again came out the end of last year you were actually writing it how long ago 2016 into 2017 yeah so it, it takes a while and i mean you, you've got to look at this too like you know this was really the first my first projects with mit press Right. I mean, I'd done some work with them on anthologies previously, but, you know, these were kind of the elusive shift and game wizards were kind of the first two. And so we, we did those as a package deal. And so kind of, you know, game wizards ended up in line behind elusive shift. And so that was part of it, part of the reason why it took so long to come out. But also, you know, academic publishing, especially, it just takes a lot of time. There's just a lot of peer review, a lot of people that need to, you know, get comments in. And of course, you know, then you've got to do these revisions. And I think my original um, submission for Game Wizards was over 160,000 words. And um, I was politely informed that that was far too long. And so really, basically <laughs> a third of the book ended up being cut for it to go into publication. And so you would have been able to read like endlessly thrilling things of my analyses at these uh, conventions, especially I cut a lot of stuff. I had in there about conventions after I eventually decided that probably was pace deadening and unnecessary, though endlessly fascinating to me, like not something really people needed to dwell on as much perhaps as, as I thought. Um, yeah, there, but there I was a like bunch of stuff. No, go on. That's the thing I feel like I encounter very often when talking to people about the history of D&D, &D, especially people not like, you know, closely associated with it, where they're just, you know, uh, when you get into like, uh, 
the the origins of the game, uh, pointing out that like Gen Con predates Dungeons and Dragons, I think is a is a fact that um, people who are not in the know often find quite surprising. This is true. I mean, I mean, you could argue that Gen Con was absolutely essential to the genesis of D anD D in a couple of like measurable ways, mm -hmm. right? It's where Guy Gax and mm -hmm. met in nineteen sixty nine. And you know, by all the metrics that I can see anyway, you know, D and D as a product didn't really take off. It was released early in 1974, but it was really Gen Con it was kind of the catalyst. It was getting people to come to Lake Geneva to be able to play the game with the Gygaxes and Ernestons and Rob Kunzes and everybody else, right? That yeah. got you know seeded the idea, got people going back to their local gaming groups. Hey, I kind of get this now. A lot of people who sort of picked up, you know, D&D off the shelf and tried to get it. I've seen a lot of correspondence and early articles to this effect. Really didn't get it. You know, they just like looked through this and were like, what am I supposed to do with this exactly? Mm -hmm. And like Gen Con seems to have served an especially crucial role in that. So is, is the, uh, the history of the gaming convention coming soon? Um, well, so I'm aware of one other person, actually, I, I shouldn't talk about other people's projects that's, that's looking at this in particular. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I, I don't think that material is going to come back for me anyway. I think I probably, I, I mean, I've said in Game Wizards, I think most of what I want to say about the, the drama, it's a drama book, right? I mean, it's really much more about the business and the interpersonal conflicts. And for me, it's kind of like a quarantine zone to stick that stuff in. And I think we kind of have to know it, but it's not, it's not that important for the things that actually interest me, which is mostly system evolution, right? Like, you know, I, I look at these games kind of like what I, I study them like, you know, you'd study the evolution of car engines over time, like you know, how, how innovations came up and kind of what, what commercial effects they had and why this was important and why this led to this. And like, that, that's kind of my sweet spot. That's the part I find most interesting. It's just, I ended up with like all this stuff about the drama and like, you know, I think without it, it's hard to correctly parse some of the things that people said retrospectively about the game, especially once lawsuits started, you know, circa 78, 79, you know, the, the, the well just got poisoned by that, right? And like so much of um, the, the dialogue about the history of the game that followed kind of, I think you have to be looking at the drama to understand why the points are being made that are being made. It's not necessarily because they show history in a balanced and realistic way, but much more kind of polemically in order to advance a particular side of that argument. So I hope Game Wizards at least helps illustrate that. I think it was very, I think it was very, I mean, it's, in some ways it's a, it's, it's a, it's an unfortunate, it's a, it, it, it's an, a series of, of unfortunate events. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously in the book, you refer to, to that conflict as the great war that we're inspecting. And it is, uh, you know, it's, it's too bad that one side mm, hyperbolizes a little bit at one point and, and the other side bends the truth a little bit for, uh, you know, public relations purposes. And then at some point it becomes completely uncorked and both sides apparently are just completely willing to just completely make up uh, completely claim that the other side had almost nothing to do with the creation of D&D &D, and it's rather amazing that it got as completely ferocious as it did um was it, do you do you think there was any way they could have avoided that i mean so that, so ultimately they 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 wound up in court for years 
and completely complete loggerheads about what rights were available. Do you can you could you, retrospectively can you see any way they could have avoided that that horror show? Or was it just doomed no, from the it, start? It was doomed from the start. I mean, it was it was it was their personalities. I mean, unfortunately, Guy Gaxnarson's personalities both. I think they they were really not um, well aligned to work together just from the start. I think you know um, you know Arneson had a very anti-authoritarian streak to him, a very independent streak that made it very hard for him to be in a situation where he felt like he was, you know, taking orders or was anyway, in any way subordinate, um, which, you know, is not uncommon in creators. And I don't mean to suggest this makes them extraordinary or bad, bad people in some way. I think, you know, Arneson believed strongly that he, he knew the right way to do things and like, that's the way they should be done. And if that isn't the way it should be done, he wants out, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, Gygax, I mean, I think there's a lot of, you know, I go quite a bit into his personal finances and some of his, his struggles at this time, especially with his large family and, and so on. I mean, I, I think his incentives for protecting this and, um, you know, making sure that he had those controls in place, I think are, are rational ones, but were wielded, you know, in a very peremptory and, um, you know, uh, in, a, in a fashion that just could not but instigate precisely what occurred. Yeah. I, I don't know. What, funny, I mean, what, what would it look like? I mean, you know, if, if Arneson had, you know, uh, pr produced material at the time that he was at TSR that represented a significant contribution to D&D from, from their perspective, um, I mean, I think that, that could have made things very different. A lot of people talk about if, if Don Kay hadn't passed away, right, would that K seems to have been able to keep yeah. Gygax in line. Um, you hear this a lot from, you know, people like Ernie that, like, Don K was the only person that could really tell Gary, you're full of shit. And, like, Gary would listen. Um, you know, that, that's a counterfactual that I think we, we explore all the time, right? Um, and it could be that he would have just slapped people around and, you know, kept order at TSR and everything would have just merrily marched along. But, but boy, I mean, you know, we battle against the dominance of TSR that himself as standard for, you know, in the roots of that go back to just these perceived slights, actual slights that, you know, he, he was on the receiving end of and the difficulty of kind of getting his Twin Cities coalition of friends integrated into the structure that right. they didn't control that was TSR. So man, I I don't know how you how that could have gone any better. <laughs> for for viewers that aren't that aren't aware of the details, that I mean, it's it's so painful to think. It's such a tragedy to think about. Is that originally TSR was Gygax and his childhood friend Don K, and and K was the original investor, and the original logo was their two initials, a G and a K combined together. And, and Dungeons and Dragons came out and, and within the year, Don K passed away. And so initially, initially, to my understanding, initially TSR was set up with Gygax was gonna be the creative, K was gonna be the business leader. And within a, year, within a year at the age of 36, Don K had a heart attack and passed away. And at that point, Gygax had to take over both roles more or less. And maybe that, that and that wasn't the original plan. Certainly. So what a, not, what a, what a not, terrible tragedy. It was not a role, again, that, that Gygax sought. It wasn't one that he was particularly well-suited for. I mean, a lot of Game Wizards is really detailing the degree to which, 
you know, he viewed managing the company as kind of an obligation that he was always trying to foist off on other people and then, but then was really unhappy with anything they did. And, you know, right. I mean, it was, it was a terrible situation for running a company. You don't want that. You don't want a chief executive who, who really is not interested in running a business and, and wants to be a creative and yet feels like he has this responsibility and can't relinquish it, right? And um, that, that, that's not a recipe for uh, a business that's going to survive for too long. Right, right. What a, what a, what a, what a tough read. <laughs> it's a downer. It is. A, and I tell people yeah. this all the time, like, I, you know, I'm kind of sorry, you know, like, to have to do it. Because it, it is, it is not a, um, a heartwarming story. <laughs> you know, let me ask this, you know, so there is the key. So you're writing, you're writing Game Wizards along about 2016. And there's this key meeting uh, right after, I'm trying to think what the, what the year is. Is it 76 or it, so it's, it's the key, it's the key meeting right after the conventions where they have a board meeting and they have, uh, so it, it must be, so it's the, it's the year that Arneson's actually on staff. <laughs> right. So it's easy to remember. It's, it's, <laughs> right. It, it was there for less than a year. So it's the one year where he's on staff. They have the big meeting after the conventions. And the the Arneson leading the Twin Cities people wants more people on the board. And uh, Gygax and Bloom, who have 90% of the shares at that point, uh, fr from what we know, uh, Gary responded poorly um, and became uh, <clears throat> incensed. And within, within the week, uh, I, I think McGarry resigned later that day and Rob Kuntz resigned the next day and Arneson was, was gone in a fairly short amount of time. So, um, so you, you were writing that it's very, you know, clearly, you know, the, among the most, you know, disruptive events at, at uh, TSR. So you're writing that in 2016. And I don't know if you've had an opportunity to read uh, Rob Kuntz's self-published book i think that came out the next year called dave arneson's true genius and um and so uh so self-published uh so this is me this is dan just talking purely by myself a little bit scattershot i would say but the centerpiece to me is there's a recollection of that same meeting by rob kuntz and it's very in which he, he recalls gygax really unloading on rob who at that point is only i think 20 turning 21. Um, and the, 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 the trauma and the pain of Rob remembering this 40 odd years later is really palpable. He's clearly really hurt, enormously hurt by that moment and cannot get over it. And to an extent whereby up until that point, he had kind of been for eight years, he'd kind of been Gary's um, uh, squire. Uh, he more or less flipped sides to a certain extent, would would you have would that would Rob's recollection have changed how you wrote up how you wrote about that meeting in any way? Oh, I mean, certainly I'd read that before Game Wizards, like you know, was had to be formally submitted. So when I say I was writing okay. Game Wizards, okay. two thousand and sixteen okay. into two thousand and seventeen, of course I I'd read Rob's book by by the time okay. uh, Game Wizards had congealed. Um, I I don't think I chose to to cite it, um, just in the sense of I was more interested in citing, you know, the the records of that meeting and then like the way Arneson described it immediately thereafter then kind of and then this is typical of my method right and it's a very you know um people people often say it's a, it's a Ronkian method right for people in the, the history racket <laughs> um you know that it, it's 
very focused on trying to recreate events from the documents that are as close to the events as possible, right? Um, but I mean, I think it largely conformed, uh, Rob Zakanovit did with my understanding of how that all transpired, right? I mean, I think there were a couple of details about, you know, very minor things that differed from the way that Arneson characterized it in the weeks that followed. But like, yeah, it, 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 it seems legit. It was my favorite part of that book. Um, in the sense right, of reading that, I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, very visceral. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, yeah that, was, uh, that was very. I was going to say, Rob, Rob clearly was, was very upset um, about that, yeah, and about how he felt he'd been treated. And, um, you know, when we talk about chain sides, I mean, I think, you know, remember as well, during 76, um, through a series of historical accidents, Arneson spent a lot of time working in shipping. This is something I think a lot of, a lot of people talked about when he was at TSR. He wasn't really doing, he was hired as a research director. Um, he didn't end up directing a lot of research, but he didn't end up doing a lot of packaging and shipping. And I think he and Rob actually were together a lot because of that, um, because of right. where a lot of Rob's responsibilities were at the time. And so I think they just kind of struck up, you know, a, a, a friendship. And then I think that after, um, after Arneson left, you know, there were projects Rob was hoping to realize that he thought, you know, whatever Arneson's next venture might be a good place for them to land. And but at the same time, he kept writing for the Dragon, right? And he was still, although no longer formally on staff, I mean, he he was still working with Gary and of course did on and off, you know, um, into the 1980s, right, on, on various projects. And so I think I think he kind of played both sides of it a bit, is the sense I get. I think it was acting as a neutral, a neutral party, I think is is what was happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the alignment category, when who's lawful, who's chaotic, I'm not sure. But uh, yes, he, he seems to have fallen into neutral. <laughs> and I'll also say the uh, there's a there's a there's a fun uh, cartoon you include in there uh, drawn by Dave Sutherland uh, of uh, in one of their what strategic preview publications of Dave McGarry looking for 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 Arneson uh, couldn't find him and then the last panel is uh, Arneson completely wrapped up with packing tape uh, trapped in the shipping in the shipping room uh, which is which yeah, is pretty I mean, amusing. A pretty raw deal he got right in a lot of respects and it, it, it's so hard you know one thing you can't do from the documents right that i work from is is you know get the chicken and egg of that right was it that he was unproductive in other ways and so they made him do this or is it because they made him do this that he was unproductive or you know it, it's mm. it's real hard to find the causes and effects around things like that but certainly they were correlated um <laughs> certainly you know that and in a shop like TSR, the, the scope of the company at the time, everybody had to do everything. And it was, you know, it was yes. not, um, no matter what your title was, you had to sweep up at the end of the day if that was what was required. And, you know, I, I, I think Arneson took that very, very poorly um, and was very upset by what he perceived to be the, the dictatorial um, character of the management of TSR. And... You know, he was subject to a number of indignities that, yeah, I think would be very good justification for someone to quit a job. <laughs> I agree. The bit around when he finally leaves, the, the day or two around, around when he finally leaves and they put him almost uniquely on a on a time clock on a daily basis is like and then and then dock him for a trip that he took with his with his direct supervisor is like, Ugh, that is that was really stepping over the line. That is rough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was really, I thought it was really important to do those days in a lot of detail. 
Um, like I, I really, yes. that, you can look at that as one of the sequences I, I maybe worked most on in the book was just trying to get exactly how that unfolded. Because, you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm really not able to tell you whether he was fired or he quit, right? This was, was another thing that was being taken to like the government when he was trying to get unemployment that like was the subject of this enormous dispute and like everybody had all their different perspectives on it. So, you know, this is, this is part of my another, again, methodological thing for me. Now, when you can't explain it, you know, just try to lay out the facts as perspicaciously as you can, right? And maybe the satisfaction you're trying to get from an explanation will come of its own accord. Kind of, I'm paraphrasing Wittgenstein there, actually. But yeah. like, you know, that, that's the best thing I know how to do when I can't answer a simple question, like, was Arneson fired or did he quit? I think that's useful to try to get that in, down in as much detail as possible. I do. Yeah. Okay. Now here's a question. Here's a question that I wanted to get into today that I'm, that finally, I'm sure that you can answer this very clearly, John. And that is okay. here we are, you know, historically on the cusp of yet another edition switch for, for D and D in one way or another. So obviously your book ends circa 1985, but here we are talking in 2022 as uh, Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast has, has playtest materials coming out. They just had a document come out like about 48 hours ago, thinking about their switch from fifth edition to whatever comes next. So a, a major, you know, a ma maybe the biggest part of the dispute in this legal fight between Gygax and Arneson is if Gygax and Arneson say, we're gonna be splitting royalties for Dungeons and Dragons game products, and then, uh, you know, after the, the little white box is really no longer being published and you start publishing basic D&D &D edited by Holmes and products with advanced D&D &D and their new hardcovers for the first time. Is that the same game? Should Arneson get a cut of those later products? Is, is, is original D&D &D and advanced D&D, is it the same game? And, and what kind of moral what kind of moral rights do the original creators have to derivative products yeah this is, this is an endlessly fascinating subject and, and probably the thing that game wizards explores most i'd say is exactly how we can try to attack that question i don't think there's any easy pat answer i think the, the unfortunate reality is the original contracts were drafted so poorly that it's really not clear what they meant by the game of dungeons and dragons right and you know the game or game rules Called Dungeons and Dragons. Does that contract refer to the original Brown Box or something that is just like it, or does it refer to, say, Holmes Basic? I mean, Holmes Basic is maybe an, an even harder one than looking at AD&D because Holmes Basic, you know, is is continuous with OD&D. It is a a fan edit. In in some respects, I think it is the the greatest triumph of the fan community's attempts to reform D&D and um, turn it into a comprehensible system. Um, which is, you know, something I talk about a lot in my first book and playing at the world, um, you know, but when, when it came out, there was a real question. I mean, there was a crossroads for TSR, uh, the, as you know, from the work that, um, Zach Howard has done, you know, looking at the, uh, original draft of Holmes Basic, you know, we know that that beginner set credits Gary Gygax and Eric Holmes as its authors, right? And, you know, a decision was made and a very consequential decision, I think, to say, no, you know, actually, this should be Eric Holmes is an editor, and the author is going to be Gygax and Arneson, and we're going to continue to give Arneson royalties for that set of game rules in accordance with this. Had they not chosen that, 
Um, it's, this is another counterfactual. It's endlessly fascinating to me. Like, what would have happened? Um, would that have precipitated an Arneson lawsuit then uh, that would have been very different from the one that came in 1979? Um, prob probably would have, is, is the short answer. They, they may have just kind of kicked this down the can. But I think in so doing, you know, TSR made it very difficult to make the case that when AD&D came around, that it was a different game. Because so much of what went into uh, Holmes Basic in particular came not from the original three little brown books, but from the supplements. And looking at these, and I, I, again, I don't know how much time you want to spend on this. this is a, I could do a whole hour just on this subject. You know, when you look at, when you look at the, the way the contracts were structured, I mean, I'm fascinated by the fact that, you know, there was this original 1974 um, January 1974 agreement that kind of stipulated the royalty division for Gygax and Arneson, which I think we, the Game Wizards are the first time people saw that. I think that was a, that was a new, new uh, addition to the, 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 the corpus that's out there. Um, but people had previously seen the April 1975 contract, which was the one that was actually litigated uh, when we get around to 1979. And that contract was signed on the same day as the contract for Greyhawk, right? Now, the contract for Greyhawk was for a different product. And this was a product that, you know, was written by Gary Gygax and Rob Koontz, and royalties for that product did not go to Dave Arneson, right? So the, the notion that there could be something that you're building on top of D&D that, you know, is a separate book, it's got, it, it, it revises monsters in the first book. Think about the fact that, like, um, yep. The attacks for monsters, the things that no, and you're no longer just rolling a d6, right, for every monster hit. Instead, this monster gets two attacks at d8 and then one at d12 or whatever, right? That, those whole charts, it went back and revised every monster that appeared in Monsters and Treasures in the original Three Little Brown Books. So it, it, it's not a separate thing. It's an addition and a recasting of a lot of that material. Um, and yet that wasn't something Arneson would have received royalties for. You know, when Blackmore came around, he, there was a contract for that. You know, it turned out it wasn't royalties, but it was for shares that um, Arneson ultimately got for Blackmore. It was very common in 76 for people to trade um, old royalty agreements that would have given the money for shares. Everybody wanted shares of TSR then. And I can't imagine why. But, you know, if you then look at Eldritch Wizardry, right? Eldritch Wizardry went to Bloom and to Gygax and not to Arneson. So I think this set a precedent for the idea that if you wrote a book that was like expanding or even revising what had previously appeared in the three little brown booklets, there's a separate contract for that and you award royalties separately that don't, don't go to Arneson. Now imagine the counterfactual world, there's no home space hit, but instead the monster manual comes out the very end of 1977. It's a, it's a set of monsters, it revises monsters that previously appeared in supplements and in the LBBs. Gary Gygax's credit is the sole author. How different is that from Greyhawk? Right? And like, so these are the things that make that question of what counts as the game or game rules of D&D um, such a, a tasty subject. I mean, again, it's, it's my, my main preoccupation, I think, throughout Game Wizards, because it's so hard to understand, you know, exactly, you know, how you could apply those vague words written in April of 1975 about the game or game rules called Dungeons and Dragons to the right. set of products that followed. And... You, you know, I'm not sure I have a strong opinion. I have intuitions about it, I'm sure, that come through in the incidental ways that I write about this. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, although I had several lawyers look at this in the course of writing this book and give, give me some advice and guidance on what they thought about it. Um, 
most of them said, well, it's up to a judge. <laughs> like, I guess that, yeah. that's a good lawyerly yeah. answer. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like how, if you have a sense for this, uh, like how much of this is because the contracts were written poorly versus how much is because this game is a unique flower in the world of intellectual property, right? right? Like it's a whole new kind of product or, or how much of this is that, you know, intellectual property laws were changing at the time, right? I was just, I was trying to dig up like when the concept of work for hire came up, uh, which of course me being in video games, I see this all the time of, you know, in software these days, like who does the software belong to? Uh, we talk about that a lot. And, and I noticed that the, the intellectual, that the copyright act was amended in 1976. What like. <laughs> and it went into effect then January 1st of 78, that copyright act of 76 did. So it's a, right after the monster manual went out is when those rules uh, started to uh, come into play. Really? Huh. But it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, oh, again, it's endlessly fascinating. I mean, um, I don't, I don't think that the, the, the changes in the Copyright Act of 76 have that much applicability to the resolution of this question. The work for higher dimension to mm -hmm. it um, does, is important to this. I did actually a blog post about this a while ago where I did all the iterations of TSR's contracts to show how their language got more specific and improved over time. Um, you know, so I, I think I looked at, you know, the original D&D and then Greyhawk and then like Top Secret. Do you think those contracts were really pushing the envelope? Was this just a, a new concept in, biz, in business in general? Uh, or, or was just the company so. struggling to, to figure it out? Well, so obviously when they did the original, you know, January 1974 contract, nobody imagined probably that there would be this whole set of follow-on products. I mean, the success of D&D was extremely uncertain and it was very unpromising in the first couple of months that it was out, right? Um, so the, the question, I think really, certainly there, there have been series of wargaming books prior that they could point to. I'm thinking of Duke Seyfried's stuff here, like Melee and things like that, that, that they produce where, you know, they're, they're, they put out four volumes of it that were kind of staggered that added like new parts to the system. It's not, it wasn't that unusual to have there be an, an initial book, and then you put add-ons to it. When Gygax did uh, Alexander the Great for Gaiden Games, they then produced a follow-on supplement, uh, Alexander's Other Battles, right? Like it's, you know, the, the concept that you're going to further develop these things, I don't think was a particularly novel one. I think, again, the, the problem is just that the original 1974 contract, we can't tell whether it was just supposed to apply to the brown box and the three little booklets and reference sheets inside of it, or if it was supposed to apply to derivative works, right? It's really the, the derivative works notion mm -hmm. is the significant one. And as you look at the later iterations of the TSR contract, and I think the Copyright Act of 76 does have some bearing on this question. I think there was a clarification of the nature of derivative works in that, um, but like that was the big change. And it was very much, you know, also specifying what we mean by this contract. Well, it's something substantially similar to the manuscript that you submitted to us. Right. And if it's dissimilar to that because it's a completely different book, then, you know, like uh, th th this will not apply. But if we fast forward to 1984 to the lawsuit over the Monster Manual 2, when, um, you know, TSR decided they didn't want to pay Arneson for that, you know, that is a case where a judge did actually rule on this. And the ruling was, you know, okay, there's a Monster Manual, and contractually, after the settlement in 1981, Arneson was supposed to receive X for the Monster Manual, and this thing has a similar name, 
and like seems to be an extension of it. And they ultimately, the judge argued that these are a single unified work, right? Huh. That like this, this is the, the, the same work as the original monster manual, as was defined in, uh, in the, the 81 settlement. And like, you know, I, I'm not sure I think that is a good characterization of the situation, <laughs> but, um, it seems surprising. It, yeah. It does not replace the monster manual. That is another part of the, the language and the settlement. You know, clearly, uh, Mincer, Redbox, Basic replaced Mold Bay Basic. They took Mold Bay Basic off the market and, you know, only marketed this, and this is what you could get. Um, you know, clearly the Monster Manual 2 did not in any sense replace the Monster Manual 1 or something like that. Fascinating. I will just, you know, I'm just going to read the specific language. So I'm, I'm looking at the, the 1975 uh, contract that you put in your book here. And I think the core of the language is that it says, uh, TSR hereby agrees to pay the authors a royalty of 10% of the cover price of the game rules or game on each and every copy sold. And from mm -hmm. that flowered all this debate about whether the derivative works were included in the cover price of the game rules or game on each and every copy sold. Well, and, and there was a further mm -hmm. wrinkle in this in the discussion of Holmes Basic, where you know they only wanted to pay him half the cover price of the box because mm -hmm. the argument was the game or game rules is the $5 blue booklet that is inside and that the remainder of the value was the you know, Monster and Treasure assortments and the dice and everything else. And, you know, they pose this whole counterfactual, uh, TSR Legal does, that, you know, if TSR decided to put in a box set that, you know, the blue box, the blue book uh, rules, and then gold mm -hmm. miniatures worth $1,000 each, does your client believe if the cover price was $1,005, right, that, you know, he's entitled to, you know, a 10% cut of the entire value of that? And I think that's a pretty good reductio for what, you know, what the argument was, but obviously Arneson uh, didn't agree and thought that, uh, I mean, his position was that none of the other stuff that appeared in the box would have had any value without his original idea and, you know, without the, the core rules being there. Um, and we compared it to the difference, you know, the if you bought an Avalon Hill game that would have a board and chits and dice in it and rules, he's like, well, obviously you need all these things to play the game. And it was my idea for the game that made it possible for all those other components to be in the box with it. I'm kind of surprised by how coherent both sides are. Like both of those mm -hmm. are, neither of those arguments are completely incoherent. And I'm, I'm broadly kind of surprised at myself for saying that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, look, if this were, uh, you know, easy, Right, this this would have been resolved uh, in uh, I think a much more more rapid and decisive manner. I mean, it's the fact that there is legitimacy I think to both sides of this claim that you know made this so complicated and ultimately so acrimonious. Right to the point where Gygax would be saying publicly in 1980 that Dave Arneson didn't write a word of the original three little brown books. Right, and you know, them, and them Arneson kind of said the same thing I think in his what his speech at Origins uh, on on Staten Island around that around that time he also claimed uh, or, or somebody one of, one of his publishers uh, published something that said it's you know D and D is created by Arneson and edited by Gygax or something like that. <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah, and exactly. you wind up with both sides basically claiming that amazingly. Yeah, um, it's a mess, and it is. It's such a downer, man. I mean, it just it, it, this has been <laughs> such a lodestone on the legacy of D and D that this stuff exists. I'm just trying to at least get the record is, if not straight, 
at least to the point where we we don't have an explanation, but at least we we have a sense of what the facts are around this that you know we can make of what we will. Let me throw up a question on our from our queue. So um, and and I also got to give a shout out to um, to Zach, like you mentioned, his work uh, around basic D&D is just completely invaluable and people should definitely go to his Xenopus Archives website. And and that's where my main resource when I need to find out something about Homes Basic, which frankly, I started with I go to Zach's website. And, and Zach said hello in our in our chat a couple minutes ago. So I'm super glad he's, he's following that. Here is a here's a question from uh, Cominius. Uh, that we got in the chat, uh, who asked, so what happened with the royalties for AD and D second edition? Was it the was it the same uh, two and a half, uh, you know, splitting of five percent for Gygax and Arneson as AD and D? What what happened? What happened after that? Well, so Arneson's agreement for the AD and D royalties concluded in 1985, right? So in, okay. the, in, in that sense, they they made this stipulation with them, right? That we're gonna. For four years, we're going to give you, you know, a 2.5% cut of AD&D royalties, and then you're done. And effectively, that was a deal worth $1.2 million, right? So, which is, which is why a settlement was reached, because that's a lot of money, especially in like, you know, 1981 dollars. That, that's a lot of money. Um, aren't, you know, the, the short answer is that Guy Gax ended up, you know, in his own dispute with TSR um, after his departure over precisely these questions. And there were there were there was a settlement. Uh, it's a confidential settlement. Um, and it's outside the scope of my book. Yeah, ask Ben Riggs, you know, what he's unearthed about this stuff in his new his new book, uh, Slaying the Dragon. Um, from what little I understand of it, it sounds like it was a, a quite a lucrative um, agreement that they ultimately came to. Fascinating. Totally fascinating. Uh, let me pivot. Let me pivot a little bit. The other thing before, I mean, the, the, the hour always goes so darn fast. I'm like, look, I'm looking at the clock here, and I'm all I'm all irritated about how time works. Um, so the other <laughs> thing I really wanted to, to touch base upon, I think that you've you've at least written a little bit this year, is you know, right in the middle, right, I think right in the middle chapter of the Game Wizards, um, you kind of foreshadow of like, well, they thought this was important, and they thought this was important, but they had no idea what was coming next. And then I'm personally like kind of kind of furiously getting through the next couple of pages to see exactly what you're talking about, and of, co of course we're talking about the the initiation of the satanic panic when a university student supposedly went missing. I think at the end of 1979 or something like that. Um, and so uh, that was you know that that's been talked about recently a lot. Um, that was folded into a major plot point on Stranger Things season four. No spoilers because I haven't I haven't seen it yet. Uh, and I think oh, you've, I you've talked a little bit about that. How how huge was that for the development of D and D as a business? Yeah, I I mean D and D D and D had gotten kind of to the the top of the bottom of the hobby games market right by 1979, around the time that the uh, the Dungeon Master's Guide was going to print, right like right before Gen Con. You know, they're like, oh, we, we've got like 44,000 pre-orders for this. This is like pretty big. We're, we're big time now uh, with, our, with our Dungeon Master's Guide. Um, Egbert, James Dallas Egbert III, he disappeared more or less around Gen Con, so in August of 1979. And the media circus around this played out uh, early in September, for the most part, um, really over the course of about a week, right, where this was a sub, D&D uh, &D suddenly was the subject of like national news every night. Um, over this this supposition that this this unfortunate uh, kid had 
ended up, you know, lost in the steam tunnels beneath Michigan State University, convinced that he was in a D&D game and that he was dead. Um, that, that was really what this irresponsible private investigator who was brought onto this kept telling the press. If, if the boy's down there, we believe he's dead. And of course, he was not down there. He was, in fact, in Louisiana. Um, and like, you know, once, once that came to light and he became aware of this, this massive kind of uh, publicity that all of this had generated, um, you know, he, he pretty quickly turned himself in and, and went back to his parents and so on. But I mean, it was a, I mean, a watershed moment in the sense of suddenly D&D had become a household word. Um, it was infamous, but like any form of notoriety is commercially, you know, uh, monetizable. And like, you, you know, the, the way the sales figures look, I mean, sales basically quadruple from where they were um, in, uh, on an annual basis over this. And then just they continued to accelerate up until like 1981. Then things be, started to kind of plateau. And you, you, yeah, I put up charts about this in my blog that show the actual business trajectory as best as I can figure out. It's really difficult to build models for this because there's it's a private company and there's there's so little accurate reporting you can actually go by. I'm not even sure how much I believe some of their internal stuff about it. But yeah, I mean, it, it was absolutely transformational. And this led to the distribution deal with Random House that, you know, then suddenly put, you know, all of the AD&D books and Walden books and Kmarts and things like that. And yeah, this had, this had a profound, um, you know, it was a profound transformation of not just the brand, but the way the hobby games industry was perceived. I mean, this, this had an escape velocity that previous hobby games just hadn't enjoyed. And this turned this into a mainstream phenomenon, a fad. There were Saturday morning cartoons. They were trying to make this movie, it's a terrible movie. Uh, they were trying to make at the time. I'm really hopeful that the new one we're expecting in, uh, it's in March, uh, will be better. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, this one, sure. <coughs> yep. <Fingers> crossed. <laughs> Surely this one. It's <laughs> fine. I'm sure it's gonna be. I'm sure it's gonna be at least energy. It'll be fun. It'll be. A, it'll be a, a romp. That's my my guess. I've not seen it. I don't have any inside information that I would be violating NDAs to talk about. But I'll bet it's gonna be a, a silly, uh, tongue in cheek, fun romp. I like the cast. Right. I like the cast that I see. That's great. That's good. I like. I like that they've. They. They're. They're actually. It's a deep enough cut with the title. That there's actually something out of the first edition DMG. That's. That's kind of nice. I don't mind that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Have you ever noticed though that like the the. Uh, yeah, I think Tramp that of, of the Tramp drawings. That's he. Tramp sometimes has a problem with like the length of limbs, and I think the arm in that drawing is just. It's just a little too long. It's like you know, like there's some kind of. Uh, joint articulation problem like with the, the knife being held to the throat there well tramp is you know tr dave trampier's art uh for me was uh bulletproof and flawless for many years and then i started doing uh an occasional uh D, D and art uh series like one a year with my partner isabel who's a trained fine artist and has an mfa and is taught and stuff like that and live live on the air with our, you know, stuff in the 1970s program, she started pointing out uh, technical flaws with Dave Trampier, and I was, and she's right, and I was flabbergasted. I had, I had never seen, I had never noticed this stuff before. She's totally right. So I had to ban her from the show for a while. Um, oh, and no. then, um, <laughs> am I banned now too? Because I, 
no, 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 we're over that. No, no, she's back. You're you have you, red carpet for you all the time. No, 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 she's come back several times, <laughs> thankfully. Um, but kind of blew my mind. So anybody can go see the first D and D and art episode where this gets pointed out to me for the first time. Um, was pretty amusing. Yes, you're 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 right. You're right. But but what a, I mean, what a, what an enormous uh, you know improvement versus you know what had come out with original D and D with you know Greg Bell and and Dave Arneson doing some of the art stuff like that. Just an enormous light speed improvement over what had come before. Yeah, oh, agreed. Yeah, I love. I actually love Trem stuff. I mean, I, I wish there was more of it that that survived. I mean, I wish he, I wish he'd been able to do more. I love some of his wormy panels. Um, I mean, you know, what's not to love? What's not to love? Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So you know, so Paul, you know, so, so, now. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I'll just point out that Paul uh, has run a game uh, based on the 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 satanic pan. It, it, it's it's funny because it he he has a he has a four hour game that wraps in all these issues of the satanic panic and the disreputable investigator and uh the the D&D cartoon and paul actually brings a copy of the book that that investigator wrote to the table as a prop and it's one of the most effective uh emotional uh games that i've ever been part of and i'm just uh i'm to this day uh amazed at what paul ran for for uh for a very thoughtful game around that um and uh and so that that has the, the the two things together have made a really big impact on me you know you know the most the most delightful thing really is to sit at a table full of gamers and and have them engage for a couple of hours with the thought of pretend you've never heard of a thing called dungeons and dragons and uh it turns out they all love doing it, all of them <laughs> well I, I was just running through my head a game where everything that william Deere says in that book is true and like you know, mm -hmm. what's the game we would build that would be based on the steam tunnels? <laughs> be based on you know all of the addiction and like horrible. <laughs> that 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 would be a good like Jeep form. Uh, we should we should call the Nordic art people. <laughs> you know, before before we uh, before we run out of time, um, I think we were talking at the beginning before we went live on air, John, that you do have a, a, a new work, a 2022 work that you can, that we can talk about. Uh, I can talk uh, about this a little bit. Yeah, kind of... <laughs> yeah, go ahead. No, as I was gonna say, I, I'm kind of surprised to be talking about this. I learned that this was coming out yesterday. And so I <laughs> certainly have not said a peep about this in social media or anything, but um, there is a, there's a trivial pursuit uh, Dungeons and Dragons edition that is, I, I guess, coming out Tuesday. Again, I, I, I I'm kind of in the dark about this apparently, but um, I was tapped to help out with this actually um, last year, and I spent a lot of time uh, working on that uh, earlier this year as well. And so, um, you know, it's it's certainly it's a it's a fun project to have to come up with. Trivia questions. I, I don't know how much people know about Trivial Pursuit. You you have to make like eighteen hundred questions, right, for a set like this. And there are, there are six categories for questions, and you do three hundred for each category. And so, um, thanks to the intervention of the Wizards RPG team, who has um, a few Trivial Pursuit fans in their ranks, uh, we managed to get game history actually as a subject in this. So there there are things that'll be questions about the history of the game, but 
a lot of it is like, you know, questions about monsters, questions about cosmology. How well do you know Faerun? Uh, because, you know, these questions get pretty dicey, depending on how much, how much you may think you know about Dragonlance or things like that. Um, and, you know, there's, there's things about spells and magic items, dungeons and adventures. And so, and like, uh, you know, a project like this, it's, it's something that, you know, you kind of, I kind of got parachuted into it. I was tapped for it because a, um, a lot of the licensed board games that are made for Hasbro are done by this company called USAopoly who makes kind of the branded board games. And so, so you're in this, this kind of three body problem where you're contracting with USAopoly and like, yeah, working with the Wizards RPG team. And of course they have plenty of ideas about what good trivial pursuit questions would be about D&D. And so, um, you know, definitely I, I will not take responsibility for like everything that's in the project, but it was um, a cool thing that I did a lot of intense work on and then never heard anything about again until this this weekend <laughs> until like yesterday and <laughs> i read on en world that like this has just been announced <laughs> i was like oh wait i remember working on that that's good that that some sometimes you work on these things and they never come to light and then sometimes you work on it and apparently it is going to come out so i hope it's good i haven't seen it i have no idea how it turned out um you know you working as a a contractor basically on this you know you throw a lot of stuff over the wall and you don't really have a lot of um you don't have a lot of editorial control over how what you throw over the wall is going to be utilized. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that it's going to be amazing and awesome, that people will love it. Um, but I'm going to have to look at it myself when it comes out on Tuesday. This, this the shots on Amazon, uh, looks, it looks beautiful, frankly. Yeah, the, the card art I, turned out well, and they made all the little pieces for it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to figuring out how it turned out. <laughs> I mean, it certainly speaks well that if they have a section on uh, history in that game, that they would consult an expert such as yourself. So, uh, you know, I think that's, you know, that's exciting. And and I would, I mean, I don't know. I think it's going to be, I think it would be fun to play regardless. Um, I'm, I'm looking at the shots right now. And I have to say, like, the, the thing that always struck me is if you have, um, you know, six categories and you're, you know, classically, right, have the little plastic bits of pieces of pie. We always call them pieces of pie that you shove in the thing. Gosh, I hope the little tray that they go in is hex shaped. Is, ah. they, they shape it like a hex. <laughs> <laughs> the entire thing should have been redone as a hex crawl, obviously. Um, yeah, unfortunately, you can't change the rules of Trivial Pursuit in order to uh, provide these, these, uh, these just uh, questions and what? so on. I'm filing a lawsuit. I know. <laughs> well, you know, there's some irony in this because a trivial pursuit had a tremendously negative impact on D&D. And when Trivial Pursuit came out, end of 1982, it started as a Canadian game, but then it was like mass marketed in 1983. It really like displaced D&D. Um, and really? this game sold at meteoric levels. I mean, you know, I talk about this in Game Wizards. The, the, the makers of that game could say with a straight face that this game made more money in, in like 18 months than both Monopoly and Scrabble had during their entire existence. That's not adjusted for inflation, of course. So like, you know, that, but with a straight face, they could say they made more. And again, they, they, they were selling 40 million copies of this. It makes the success of D&D, what we look at is this, you know, so prominent. It, it makes it look like trifling. 
compared to like what happened with Trivial Pursuit. And D&D built up over like a, you know, almost a decade before it really got popular. And this was just an overnight phenomenon. And so I, I, I certainly did have to put in a Trivial Pursuit question, which was like, what game was it that came out, you know, <laughs> in Populace in 1983 that was responsible for the decline? You just might have Trivial Pursuit be the answer. <laughs> I am all about the media. I'm all about that. I can't guarantee it made it in. Like I said, I, I don't have editorial <laughs> control over it, but I, I hope they let that in. <laughs> A tasteful editor would keep that in. That's brilliant. I think so. <laughs> That's brilliant. You know, before let me let me ask. Okay, here's a detailed question that I wanted to ask. I'm, I'm, I apologize to everybody for this being a non sequitur. Um, you know, D&D was almost published by Gaiden Games, and I'm not sure I'm saying that right. So Gaiden Games published the first version of Chainmail, and then uh, Lowry, Don Lowry uh, moved to, uh, I guess, Belfast, Maine. Um, and there was a moment where Gygax thought he was going to move to Maine and was trying to recruit Arneson to come with him uh, just at the cusp of D&D being published. My question is, do we know specifically where Gaiden Games was based for an address in Maine? Because because like yeah. we, we know the address, we know the address in Lake Geneva of TSR and people go there and they take photos and stuff like that. Do we know where Gaiden Games was specifically? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I, mean, I can go pull it off of a copy of, yeah. of uh, Larry's yeah. Gaiden. You, you need it right Maybe now? We'll, we'll do that. We'll do, no, no, we'll do that offline. We'll do that offline. Okay. I would be very interested to find that out. <laughs> I think I did talk to somebody once who went there. So, I mean, the the the, the story I always heard is that they had, they had a barn that was attached to the building that they ran the game shop out of. And it actually, like, Tom Lom and people like that who went out with them, right? There were people who went to Maine with them, yeah. including Tom yeah. Lom. And they, like, they, like, slept in the barn. Like, I guess in some loft there that they converted into, like, makeshift studios for those people. And like, I, so I, I, I'm sure at one point I talked to somebody who actually went there and indeed at some point their stock got liquidated and went to another game store in Maine. You know, I'm in Maine at the moment, by the way. Um, oh, no. so, but oh, right. oh, whereabouts? not super close to there, but, um, okay. but like, yeah, I think, I think somebody did try to hunt this down and see if they could like find any records and yeah. things like that. I mean, I'm in touch with with Don Lowry. I was when I was doing playing at the world, and uh, and with his son, and they've been they've always been very helpful and forthright with me on on things. So um, you can't do the stuff that I do without a lot of friends who were there at the time who were like willing to help you out with this stuff. So, um, but I'm not really sure how much he still has that I think people would you know I don't I don't think he has the original type manuscript of sure. you know first edition chainmail or something like lying around waiting for the right moment to reveal it but I partly asked because so I, I I grew up in Maine went to school there and the 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 your description of a house with an attached barn sounds so much like my grandparents place it's completely uncanny um um which is not something you can legally do nowadays I would I've I've discovered recently as a matter of fact um and the other thing that, that's always uncanny to me is the fact that uh, basic D&D came out at Origins being held at Wagner College on Staten Island, which is really close to where I am now. And my partner, Isabel, for quite a number of years taught at Wagner where basic D&D came out. And I'm like, that is that is really weird that I've accidentally wound up visiting here. So really interesting, interesting connections uh, 
around those things in the early years. They, they say it. They say everything's connected, man. I mean, this is the thing. The more you move in the world, the more you study this stuff, the more rocks you look under. Uh, yeah, I think you find you find all kinds of bizarre little causes and effects. I mean, one of the things I love in Game Wizards is, you know, that the the story of when Arneson started to feel like he was being cheated by Gygax on royalties was in fact in Gaiden Games over the royalties for Don't Give Up the Ship. And that this like mm -hmm. created Arneson's original impression of what it was like to work with Gygax. He was a guy who's going to promise you royalties and then not pay you. And just, just seeing things like that, that, or, you know, the fact that Arneson swore to do no more work for Gaiden Games until he was going to get paid. And then when we look at, well, who did write D&D? Why was it that Gary was like, okay, I'm going to take the pen and like, I'm, I'm going to do the primary heavy lifting on this? It's because Arneson had told him like three months before, you know, that he's not going to work, he's not going to do any more work because he doesn't believe he's going to get anything out of Gaiden Games. Like all, all these little like causes and things that connect up together. It's the fun of doing this, right? It's what I'm in it for. I just love finding stuff like that. That's amazing. And I, I also praise, you know, I love the fact that you struck, you you gently structure it uh, at, like it's a war game and every chapter is, a, is an annual turn and the convention season, the summer is the combat phase. And uh, and you have a little you have a little uh, 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 end of end of the turn um, summary at the end of each chapter, um, in, in, including you, you know, know including a way. little tiny tidbit. Yeah, you do know by the way that originally, and this is another thing that was cut from my one hundred and sixty thousand rip. That that was much a much bigger part of it. And there were actually game rules for a diplomacy variant. I actually oh. put some of them up on my blog. It was what? it's called ah. the Game Wizard is the variant. And it shows you what the starting, you know, you, you play as the companies, you play as TSR, Avalon Hill, SPI, and Heritage. And like, you know, it shows you which personalities you have attached to each of the companies and like, you know, the convention season and who controls what conventions is like, you know, when you end up getting your upkeep and things like that for it. You can find this online. I, I put up- How did I not know this? Why with... did nobody tell me about this? <laughs> <laughs> the, if, if this, if I was doing self-publishing still, like I did with playing at the world, it would have been a much weirder book because it would have been like full of that. <laughs> like this is the thing, like actual responsible marketing people tell you, oh, that's too gimmicky. You shouldn't do that. The next thing you know, it's just like this history book with like just those that that little trace of it is all that remains. The term results at the end of the end of the chapters. Wow. I will also point out that uh, that uh, it, it was our, our, our friend Travis, uh, way at the beginning of the episode, uh, also said that he would love to see some of the convention stuff that was cut, put out. He said, I'd buy it if you self-publish that. So just yeah, another, another vote in there. Possible, like the Snyder cut, you know, that someday there might be the Peterson cut of Game Wizards, that uh, we do the whole thing. I mean, of course, I, you know, MIT owns... The, the book now the regents of MIT like are the copyright owner for Game Wizards, which makes that a little complicated. So it'd be a Zack Snyder like situation uh, trying to get the John Peterson cut <laughs> produced. Um, but you never know. Uh, all of my books, I think, would be better if I redid them. They all be longer. They, they'd all be more <laughs> tedious if they're the way I wanted them to be. But um, you know, I think all of them would benefit from from a longer treatment. Well, well, folks, we're, we are just about on the wire here for, for time, so I'm going to have to rein us in. I just did want to share with you that I did a very, very rapid bit of last-minute research, and I can assure you that the uh, pie pieces in the Trivial Pursuit D&D game are indeed hex-shaped. Oh, they are. So Look at that. Oh, wow. <laughs> 
I'm looking forward to actually seeing that. Thank goodness for that. (laughs) You know, I'm not going to be like the master of this game, by the way. I'm sure I'm going to be asked to play this at conventions. Some of these questions that we put together for this from deep lore in, you know, okay, we need to know like this about the Forgotten Realms. That was in my brain for about 30 seconds and then left (laughs) once the question was written. So I don't think I have an unfair advantage on this. John, any, I think I any was, final thoughts on on your on your your great book, Game Wizards, or uh, on Trivial Pursuit, or anything that we didn't mention here that you want to make sure you get out to uh, your fans? Um, no, I guess I guess no, no. I think we're good. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Awesome, awesome. In. Uh, yeah, so uh, if people would like to leave uh, comments on this show, but uh, other things that uh, we should have asked uh, John, I'm sure we'll have him on again in the future, I hope, and uh, we'd uh, love uh, seeing that. And of course, remember that you can like, follow, and subscribe to us, The Wandering DMs. We are on YouTube and Twitch and Twitter and Facebook and GitHub and TikTok, and we have the handle Wandering DMs on all those sites. So follow us there, and you'll see updates on future shows with guests like John. If you prefer to listen to our show in audio-only podcast format, you can find those podcasts on our website at wanderingdms.com, also through various podcast carriers such as Google Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes. If you're listening to this show right now on one of those carriers, please take a moment to rate and review us on their site. That helps other users of that site find us, and we really appreciate it. We really do. And of course, huge thanks to our patrons who support the show here. If you'd like to join them, please visit patreon.com slash wandering DMs, and you'll see a bunch of benefits on our different tiers there. In particular, uh, every single tier gives you access to our Discord server, like Paul said at the top of the show. And we'll be there, as we usually do Sunday, in about 10 minutes to continue the chat with live video chat on our Discord server. Um, and I'm sure uh, other people have uh, great observations about uh, the Game Wizards book. I, I know our patrons have have read it and have strong thoughts about it in the past, which is why we really wanted to talk about it today. Uh, Paul, you're going to be there today, yes? I will indeed. See you there. Awesome, awesome. Should, and I know I Paul too, was, we, I'm sure we would love that. Is that possible? Do you have time for that, John? Probably. Our, our oh, viewers we, specifically we, said they'd love to see that, actually. Okay, I can, I can come. Just send me the link, and I'll, uh, I'll, see, I'll see if I can get Discord working on, on this thing. Uh, I don't know if I've ever done Discord video before, but I'll probably get it to work. Great, great. If we awesome. can get you on there for awesome. a few minutes of your time, John, we definitely appreciate it. <laughs> Yeah. And in our patrons, uh, jump in if you have uh, other questions we didn't get to today. Uh, Also, look for other upcoming shows on uh, the Wandering DMs channel. I'll be back tomorrow night with uh, games from Elder Times as I continue playing through the AD&D Pool of Radiance game, now that I'm up to 1988 in my gaming history. Um, And then uh, Dan Cullen and I will be back Thursday night for another Book of War game because... We are not failing to play war games. We are still playing war games on Wandering Is Gen Channel. So tune in live uh, for some D&D miniatures action Thursday night. And then, of course, uh, Paul and I will be back next week uh, because we are live every Sunday. Um, but, uh, John, thank you so much for making time out of your day today. And um, we hope we'll have you on again sometime. That sounds fantastic. Thanks again. Love the show. That's the best. Uh, Yeah, we are live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So please join us again next week for another thought-provoking discussion. We'll see you then. Bye, everyone.